one body with many members. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in one body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the word of God. It's good to see everyone on this uh, classic fall day. And uh, thank you once again for continuing to uh, pray for Jill. She's, she's doing better. Recovery is slow but steady. So there is, there is hope there. We can see the light uh, at the end of uh, a tunnel. Uh, so thank you for your continued prayers. Uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we know from your word, uh, as Paul has uh, written to the Corinthians, that where we are in your body is by your design. Uh, that you have called us and placed us specifically to be part of, of this community, this, this church. And Father, that is for the reason not only of, of sharing our lives with one another, of serving one another, but ultimately by doing that, we then bring glory to you. And so we pray for the continued unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We pray, Father, for <clears throat> an increasing a sense of your presence and joy as we serve you and serve one another. We thank you, Father, that there are <clears throat> other churches who are committed to the same goal, that we are not unique in this. And so we pray for our churches, Lord God, we think of New Hope Fellowship, we think of our brother in Jamaica, uh, and others, Lord God, um, folks at North Shore who are committed to exalting the name of Christ, using the particular gifts uh, that you have uh, empowered them with by your Spirit, all for the purpose of uh, shining uh, the truth of who Jesus is out into the world, uh, that others may also come to worship him. We thank you as well for the healing power of your word and of your spirit. <clears throat> we continue to pray for those in our assembly who are ill or under the burden of anxiety or financial pressure or work pressure. Father, who may be looking for work, who may be needing to look for work, we ask that your spirit would calm them and give them a, a sense of, of peace and direction. Father, that uh, as the expression goes, that they would doubt their doubts and put their trust more fully and more wholly in your character and in your calling. Uh, where we are, Lord God, wherever we are rejoicing or are struggling, uh, it is by your design that we might be conformed more and more into the image and likeness of our Savior. And so we ask that your Spirit now would just speak to us, that as we have covenanted together, that we would just experience um, in, in new and fresh ways, but also in familiar ways, the comfort, direction, and guidance of your Holy Spirit as we worship Christ. Father, this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Our text this morning is, is uh, one that is designed to help us understand what it means to share our lives together, to be part of a community, a particular kind of community that is the church. Uh, in his book, um, The Good and Beautiful Community, James Bryan Smith begins a chapter uh, that's titled The Serving Community uh, with this story. 
He says, I once asked a pastor if the life of discipleship to Jesus really takes root in a community of people, particularly in a local church, how would you know if it was really beginning to make a difference? And without hesitation, the pastor said, in committee meetings. We apply Smith's question to our context here at Maranatha. We ask that question, if, if the life of discipleship to Jesus really was to take root and is taking root here, how would we know if it was really beginning to make a difference? And in committee meetings, uh, certainly, staff meetings for sure, but also in elders' meetings and in our worship meetings and in our members' meetings and especially in our discipleship group meetings. We have changed the, the name and the focus of our community groups to discipleship groups because we want to be a community that is committed to teaching what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to follow him more faithfully and more wholeheartedly and more joyfully. We, we want every member of Maranatha learning and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We want to be a church that is making disciples who are making every effort to love one another, to help one another, to share their lives with one another, and to serve one another, as well as the, the greater community outside the, the walls uh, and boundaries of our church. And that's why we're spending these uh, several weeks uh, preaching expository messages that are based on uh, our church covenant. And why we're doing that is because, well, our covenant defines our goals and our values and our commitments. But let's be clear right from the start that our church covenant is not scripture, but it does codify what we believe. It's why we read things like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. It, it condenses, it codifies in a, in a neat way all that we believe the Bible tells us about how we are to live with one another, how we are to worship Christ, and how we are to serve our community. Our covenant, like creeds, really is a, a floodlight that points to God as the author uh, and source of our love. Christ is the author of our salvation, and the Holy Spirit as the, the bonding agent of our community. Our covenant places a priority on our studying the Bible together, learning the scriptures in community, so that by studying it together, we will practice what Christ preaches. The more we practice what Jesus preaches, the more the life of discipleship to Christ will become more and more evident and take root in our lives. And so we really have, just by way of reminder, three essential goals for, these, for this series as well as our discipleship groups as a whole. And the first goal, and Pastor John mentioned these last week, but it's always good by way of repetition to hear them again. The first goal is that we would grow in our understanding of the covenant and its biblical foundations. Recognizing that the covenant is not the institutional opinion of the elders. This is right out of the, uh, the Life in the Family of God study guide, by the way. We recognize the covenant is not the institutional opinion of the elders or what we think is most important. It's really the promises of the covenant are derived from the scriptures, which is why we began with 1 Corinthians 12 today. Um, so secondly, we will renew our vision to be an active, vibrant church community known as joyful disciples of Jesus. So living in the light of the covenant will produce something beautiful, a community that is united, that is joyful, that is generous, that is gracious, that is humble, and that is loving toward one another and toward the greater community, all for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. We seek, in essence, to fulfill the, the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives, that we would love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And then lastly, we would flourish as a church, that the Christian life is meant to be a way of life that is, in a sense, abundant in terms of the experience of God's grace, mercy, and love, and then we overflow with that and share that with others as well. We truly believe that Obedience to the scriptures, obedience to the God who authored them, really is the key in the, to a life of joy and faithfulness and fullness. This week's message uh, is an exposition of the covenant promise that we will rejoice at each other's happiness and lovingly bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Uh, 
And the big idea of the message is simply that as an expression of our love, we will share in the highs and lows of our brothers and sisters. And our outline is simply working from not only 1 Corinthians 12, but I'm going to bring in other scriptures as we move along. So let's just look uh, in a small way, uh, taking what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, and, and really just sort of seeing as the header, if you will, verses 12 and 13. Because we want here to look at sharing our lives really means sharing uh, in the work to promote the unity of the church. Paul writes, uh, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, he says. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of the same spirit. So Paul points to this common, ex- this common experience of every member of the church, that they have been baptized in the one spirit, into Christ. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were anything but a unified body. We know from what Paul writes, particularly in chapters 12 to 14, there was a serious division in the church regarding the use of and the priority of the spiritual gifts. They were as divided about the use and priority of the gifts as they were about the particular Bible teacher that they followed. Remember, the letter begins with Paul taking the Corinthians to task for saying, some of you I'm hearing, some of you are saying, I am of Paul. Some are saying, I am of Apollo. Some are saying, I am of Cephas, meaning Peter. And then the really spiritual ones were saying, well, you may be of Apollo, Paul, and Peter, but I'm of Christ. And Paul is saying that's not what this is about. And they were taking the same approach with regard to the spiritual gifts. I have the gift of prophecy. No, no, I have the gift of healing. No, I have the gift of faith. Oh, I have the gift of tongues and the interpretation. And so they were dividing into these little camps. And Paul says this is not the way the church is supposed to function. What the C's, what the Corinthians had forgotten, and what Paul has to forcibly remind them about is that they have each received a manifestation of the Spirit, not for lauding or extolling themselves, not for the purpose of dividing into particular enclaves or cliques, but for the common good, for the building up of one another, for the building up of the church. And moreover, these gifts, he reminds them, were given to them by the Holy Spirit. They didn't earn them. They were simply distributed to them as God saw fit for their good and for the good of the body. So they've done nothing to deserve them. They've got nothing to boast about. No one should boast about the particular gift, uh, particularly in the Corinthian situation, because what they were doing is, well, my particular gift makes me more spiritual than the next person. And Paul says that's not the way to work toward unity. Spiritual gifts are given to unite, not to divide. So rather than argue about which spiritual gift is best, says Paul, Use your gift, whatever it is, to glorify Christ and to unite the body. Preach the gospel. Build up one another. Strengthen the unity of the church. The unity of any church depends on every member using what spiritual gift they have for the common good. And Paul illustrates his point by this extended metaphor of the body. And he, he does something very, very clever here, because if you read Corinthians, both first and second, you, you certainly get the idea that the Corinthians themselves were placing a great amount of emphasis on being spiritual, that they were people of the Spirit, that they were so far ahead of their other brothers and sisters and churches throughout uh, the, the world at that time, that they were spiritual. And Paul brings them down by saying, no, you're really part of a body. You may be, in a sense, spiritual in the sense that you have been baptized in the Spirit by virtue of faith in Christ, but you're really members of a body. And then he goes into this extended metaphor. The seed of Paul's metaphor of, of the body is really found in verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 12. Um, he says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Jill and I have a, a, a friend who is uh, the president and CEO of a radio ministry on Cape Cod called Song Time. And uh, like most organizations, including ours, there's, there's a motto that sort of defines the vision of this particular ministry. And its motto really comes out of 1 Corinthians 12. And the motto is simply this, many voices, one message. We, we sang about it as well in one of our songs, right? One heart, one voice. We are many voices, but there should be one message. That's simply what Paul is getting at. Many parts of the body, but they're all united and joined together with Christ. So that just as the Father and Son and Spirit work together in the distribution, the activity, and the empowerment of the spiritual gifts, so too should every member of the church use their spiritual gift to glorify Christ, preach the gospel, build up one another, strengthen the unity of the church. Now, were this another message, we would delve into what those gifts are. So you just have to take my word for it. That's where Paul is going. When he talks about to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, he is telling the uh, Corinthians that God has made the church a, diver a diverse group of people, but then out of that diversity is a greater unity that they share in Christ. So in order for the body to function perfectly, Paul mentions the fact that everybody, every part has to work in unison. You can't separate right? ears from eyes and noses from mouths and things like that. So no individual part is more or less important. He even goes to the, to the extent of saying when one member suffers, the whole body suffers. Anybody who is, any parent who has stepped on a Lego in the middle of the night knows this. Right? Or if you have stubbed your toe, or you know, at work, Lord forbid, you get a paper cut. Right? It's just like every, every ounce goes into that one part. So there is this, that's what Paul is, is wanting to emphasize, that there is a hurting uh, that takes place. Do you take this tack with the spiritual gifts? And Paul says, you know, if the whole body were an eye, where would, this, where would be the sense of hearing? We might as well just ask, if the whole church were apostles, where would the prophets be? Right? In the same way Paul asks, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? You might as well ask, well, if the whole church were prophets, then where would the teachers be? And so on. Right? You, you can't simply say, look, there are many times in my experience in ministry, and maybe you have this in any organization or committee that you belong to. Look, if you just thought about it from my point of view, if you just agreed with me, everything would be fine. If everybody just thought like me, the world would be a better place. No. Right? There has to be a diversity of opinion. There has to, I mean, the Scripture talks about iron sharpening iron. That there is a sense in which disagreement, conflict, a different perspective is, is a healthy way of, the, of God promoting the unity of the church. We would seek to avoid conflict. We would, exceed, we would seek to be with people that we agree with all the time. And, and it, one of the concerning things about our current culture, if you are paying attention, is that more and more we are breaking up into specific groups. I mean, you, you can't read the news on the internet or watch it on TV or stream it without particularly in this now political season, without the phrase, there are red states and there are blue states, right? And so we're, we're moving into a time when culturally that's becoming more and more heightened. We have to be very careful that we don't allow that to seep into the church. In some cases it has. The, the idea of this diversity with unity, but unity over diversity, unity that is grounded not in a, the same kind of thought, whether it's theological or, or political, but it's a unity that is grounded by finding our identity, purpose, and salvation through faith in Christ by the grace of God. Classic example of this you see in the early church is Jesus' selection of the apostles. I mentioned this at Bible study on Friday night, and I've mentioned it other times as well. Jesus deliberately chooses two men who are at opposite extremes. He chooses... Matthew, who is a tax collector, 
a sellout to his own country because in order to collect taxes, Matthew would collect you know, from his own people, but he, the Romans had no qualms about how much tax Matthew collected as long as they got their cut. And so if the tax was 30% of your income, Matthew was well entitled to take 60, keep 30 for himself and give 30 to Rome. So he chooses someone like that. And then he chooses Simon the Zealot, who would be the MAGA hat wearing guy of his day, right? The ultra naturalist, the nationalist. So he chooses these two men from opposite ends, but he unites them for the purpose of bringing him glory and planting his church and preaching the gospel. We have that maybe in our own body here as well. There's a divergence of opinion, but none of that matters if our goal is to exalt Christ, strengthen the unity of the church, and be salt and light. The modern version of Paul's manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, maybe a more updated version would simply be, look, stay in your lane. Focus on being used by God where he has placed you. Because he has placed you. Right? If he's distributed the gifts, that means he's distributed his, his, his men and women, his children, in specific places in their church. With regard to the gifts, you simply ask the Spirit to use the gift or the gifts that he's given you to the fullest effect. Don't worry or be anxious if you don't know what your spiritual gift is. I was a young Christian and... and uh, you know, back in the, in the heyday of the, of the charismatic movement, the big thing was you had to find your spiritual gift. I remember being tremendously anxious about this. Well, what, what is my spiritual gift? What does that mean? And, and uh, sensing an, uh, my anxiety, uh, an older, wiser Christian um, man just said, look, just keep following Jesus. When the time comes, uh, the Holy Spirit will give you the gift he knows you need when you need it. And he did. You get back to the question that I asked at the start. If the life of discipleship to Jesus was to really take root here, and I believe it has, how would we know if it was beginning to make a difference? Well, we would share uh, our lives. We would work together uh, to promote the unity of the church. But that's simply the why, if you will, of that. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 26 gives you the why of that. There are many voices, one message, many members, one body, one goal. Let's look at how you do that. How does working together promote the unity of the church? What does that look like? Well, turn in Ephesians 4, 15 to 16, which is another one of Paul's letters. Paul writes this. And if you remember, if you know anything, we've gone through this a little bit in our Ephesians study on Friday night, 7 o'clock, if you want to join us. Ephesians breaks up neatly into three, six, uh, three chapters each, six chapters total. First three chapters, Paul says, this is your standing, this is your position, this is your identity in Christ, this is who you are. And then verses, chapters 4 to 6, this is what you do now. So this is what you are, this is what God now requires of you because of your position in Christ. Chapter 4 is part of that. And Paul is talking to them in chapter 4 about how God has gifted the church with particular individuals for the purpose of helping them grow in their knowledge. He talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he says the reason for that is that speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. Where we heard that before, 1 Corinthians 12 which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul talks about speaking the truth in love, but he does something that Paul uniquely does. He loves to take nouns and make them verbs. Because the word or the verb or the adverb, uh, speaking or participle rather, speaking doesn't appear in the original. What Paul says literally in the Greek is truthing in love. So he takes a noun, he takes truth, which is this noun, and he makes it a verb. Truthing in love, what does he mean by that? The thought is that truth is not something that you simply believe intellectually, that you grasp onto, like uh, today is uh, Sunday, October the 16th, 2022, but the truth is now something you act upon as well. It's something you practice. 
So it's more than just an acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, that Jesus has redeemed me. How do you act upon that truth? Well, how does that truth impact the way you think and act toward others, particularly in the context here of the church? The person who does the truth is ruled and governed by the truth. They're reliable. They're dependable. It's almost as if you're reading the Boy Scout loyalty oath, right? They're loyal, trustworthy, brave, courageous. There's someone you can lean on. There's a, that's the person you can call or text at 3 in the morning saying, I have a flat tire on the Cross Bronx Expressway. Can you help me? Or this is the person that you call when you have received bad news and you need someone to pray with you. This is the, this is the, and, and they will, right then and there. Or they'll come over and visit and, and, and say with you. This is the person who will rejoice with you when you have good news to share and will be genuinely interested in your happiness rather than envious of it. That's a person who's doing the truth. And we have people like that in our fellowship. We've experienced it, Jill and I have for sure. And we have been greatly blessed by it. And if you have someone like that, if you've experienced that kind of truthfulness and truth in action, then you know the, the, the worth and the value of it and how it promotes a sense of not only joy in Christ, but a sense, oh, I really, I really am part of something here. Because the, 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 there is a sincerity of belief. It's not just words, but it's words that's back, that are backed up with action. Um, you know, from a literary standpoint, those of you who are into the Lord of the Rings, you, you, you know, if you know the character Samwise Gamgee, that, his, his loyalty, his devotion to Frodo is a great example from a literary standpoint of, of someone who, is, who just stands by, right? He stays with him through thick and thin, actually carries him up, right? Mountain Doom to throw the ring into the, into the furnace there. So a person who's committed to truthing in love uh, avoids also the mistake of separating the two, right? I know a lot of people who are really good at the truth, but not so good at love, right? I know a lot of people who are really good at love, but not so good at the truth, right? And the two have to be held in balance, right? I mean... Someone who, who deals only in the truth is the kind of person, when you go to them and tell them that you have received bad news, uh, you know, with regard to maybe the, a doctor's report or something, and they look at you and say, well, you know, if you lost a little weight, you wouldn't be in this situation. Okay, that's true. <laughs> true, absolutely true. Loving, not so much. Maybe in their eyes it is, but in your eyes, like, man, that's not how I'm receiving that. Right? <laughs> Same point, someone who, who is loving, but is not necessarily in the truth, it says, you know, I, I don't mind all that much when you drive 30 miles over the speed limit. It kind of gets us there faster. You know, true, right? That's being very accepting, but it's, it's also, the truth is, yeah, it's only, you know, can you dial it back down to maybe like 10 miles over? Because, I mean, no, who drives the speed limit, honestly? <laughs> Woven into Jesus' command, remember, that we love one another just as he has loved us, is the expectation that loving one another would mean doing the truth. And remember, too, recall that it was the Ephesians' failure to love, separating truth from love, that Jesus speaks to them so sternly in Revelation 2. Right? They were excellent and superb at being doctrinally sound and rock-solid were the Ephesians. But on the loving side, Jesus says, you need to return to your first love. You need to balance that truth with love. I like the way that John Stott explains it in his commentary on this passage. I think you can still pick it, a little paperback, uh, his commentary on Ephesians. He says, truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. And, and let's be clear, too. Paul isn't talking here about practicing his truth. 
not talking about the Ephesians practicing their truth. Because there is no such thing as my truth or your truth. Because the truth isn't something fluid, like the tide that rises and falls. Paul is talking about the truth. He's talking about an absolute standard of what truth is, of what proper conduct means, and what proper thought and thinking means. He's talking, no doubt, about the one who proclaimed himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus uses those words in John 14, 6, there is a reason why he puts the definite article before each one of those things. Because he is not a way, he is not some way, but he is the way, the truth, the life, meaning exclusively, only, absolutely, there is no one else who is going to be the truth or is the way, or is the life, but it is him and him alone. And any time you then talk about Jesus, you're talking about the gospel. You're talking about what it means to say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You're talking in terms of we who were, and by nature, born sinners, children of wrath, redeemed and saved only by God's electing and sovereign grace. So Paul is saying, this is the way I want you to think. Because if you, if you can see yourself as being that low, then you realize from what depth God has brought you and what heights he wants you to ascend to. It's why he starts Ephesians with that glorious passage in verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1. God has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he assures them that they have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so this is why we then speak and truth in love with one another. Because all of us have been brought into this marvelous relationship with the great and glorious God, sealed with his spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing the down payment of our inheritance. He has united us from diverse and various backgrounds, not just ethnically, not just racially, not just in terms of our sex, but in terms of our experience. Some of you, some of us have come through horrendous experiences in order to come to faith in Christ. Some of us have been abused. Some of us have had violence done to us. Some of us have done violence to others. Some of us have been lied to, been betrayed, and we ourselves have betrayed and have, been li and have lied. Some of us have suffered long and terminable illnesses. And yet God says we are useful to him because even in that state, even in that condition, as Paul would say, as the chief of sinners, God's grace and mercy came to me so that in me might be displayed his grace and his mercy. And so he brings, does God, this diverse group of people together for the purpose of displaying his manifold wisdom. That's right out of Ephesians 3. That in the church he displays this. He brings together a Matthew the tax collector. He brings together a Simon the zealot. He brings together a thoughtful guy like Nathaniel, and he brings together a man of action like Peter. Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and Luke, you and me. Truthing in love is, is serving one another and sharing our lives together because it means practicing what the truth means. It's practicing the gospel. Because when we speak the gospel to one another, we encourage one another. I love this expression. Ray Ortland said it first, and Andrew Matheson, when he was here, he picked up on it. When we speak the gospel to one another, we encourage one another to stare at the glory of Christ until we see it. We encourage one another to marvel at God's miraculous grace. That he could save us when he didn't have to. That he could have left us in our sinful condition. But out of his free grace, his free mercy, his abundant loving kindness, he gathers us up into his arms and forgives us. I love that expression in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where Paul talks about that, how God has revealed to us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the light of the knowledge of God in the glory of Christ. Where do you see the glory of Christ? You first see it in his word. And God willing, we then should see it displayed and revealed in one another. In lives that are changed, lives that are transformed. That's why we emphasize, in a sense, sharing testimonies. 
illustrating how the power of the Spirit changes hearts, changes minds, changes lives, transforms relationships. We speak the gospel to one another. We also hold one another accountable. We remind one another there is a standard, there is a truth, the truth to which we must all submit and adhere and follow. The gospel tells us how we ought to behave. Not so that we become good moralists only, but more importantly, that by our behavior, by our conduct, we bring glory to Christ. And we verify and validate the power of the gospel. That we say what we mean, we mean what we say, that our actions and our faith are consistent. Our action and our words are the same. We correct bad behavior by telling the truth to one another, coming alongside our brother or a sister and saying, in love, obviously, that was out of line. Or that thing that you're doing, that needs to stop. Because it's hurting you and it's hurting someone else. Or you're just, you're damaging your relationship with, with, with God. It takes courage, but it also takes love to do that. And you think, well, you know, I'm just being a busybody. Well, if it's done in love, no. And sometimes it is the most loving thing to correct. We speak the gospel to one another. We also encourage one another, one another to think rightly about Christ and to think rightly about ourselves. We remind one another, you know, certainly in counseling situations, but just in conversations with people, there, there are days, I'm sure, when you wake up, maybe weeks, I've gone through periods of this where you just feel like you are the worst person on the face of the earth. And you begin to give and state to God all the reasons why you are the worst person on the face of the earth. And then the word or another brother or sister comes along and says, but your thoughts do not determine your identity in God. What you're thinking about yourself is not how God sees you. And I, I learned a really nice expression. It was one of, uh, I think, Tim Keller's sermons on Jonah, where he talks about doubt your doubts. Why is my idea about who I am in God's presence more reliable than what God's word says about my position in him? Doubt that. If that thought creeps into your heart and into your mind that somehow the way you're feeling determines how God sees you, cast that aside. Read Ephesians 1 and see what God has done and continues to do by virtue of his lavishing grace, raised you up with Christ, seated you at the heavenly places in him, in him, not in your emotions, not in your thoughts, not in your ideas, but in him. To see yourself the way that God sees you. You look at the mirror and you think, yeah, I, I, you know, just you, you, see, you see one image. But it's distorted. The way Paul will talk about it in 1 Corinthians 13 is through a glass darkly. God looks back at you and he sees us not as we are, but as we are in Christ. Clothed in Christ's beauty, Christ's glory, Christ's righteousness. Our sins forgiven, our heart renewed, our mind transformed our face radiant. We, we have sung about it as well. The idea of being renewed in his image. Being his bride. Spotless, blameless, without stain or blemish or wrinkle. You speak the truth to one another. We speak the gospel to one another. We share our lives, and from your own experience, then you can say, look, I was there. I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to be in that hole, but here's how you get out of it. Right? You speak the gospel to one another, but you also help one another grow up into Christ. That's the, the aim, if you will, of all three of those manners of speaking the gospel to one another. Because the more we practice truth and love, the more we become like Jesus, and the more we become like Jesus, the more we love him. The more we love him, the more we are conformed to his character, the more we delight to do his will. 
There's an old expression that if you think rightly, you'll act rightly. And the way you learn to think rightly is by learning what the Word says about where we stand before God, studying that Word with other brothers and sisters as well. So one of the ways that we can share our lives and promote the unity of the church is by speaking or truthing in love with one another. And then the, the, the last one, and this list is not exhausted because that would take too much time. That would be another whole set of sermons. But these are just a couple of ways to get us started. So we have speaking the truth, and then the, the last uh, part of this uh, message would be that we share our lives. It, it means showing compassion to one another. And this, uh, these uh, marvelous verses, again, from Paul in Romans 12, 15, and Galatians 6, 2, rejoice with those who rejoice or um, weep or mourn with those who weep or mourn and then carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, are you familiar with the, the phrase, the, the ministry of presence? Because that's what Paul is talking about in the Romans 12 passage. We, we, were, we learned this. It's one of the first lessons in our pastoral counseling class in seminary was the ministry of presence, particularly in the situations where there are grief. And I'll get to that in a moment. But when you talk about the ministry of presence, it's about having company around you to, to share things with. Um, so you rejoice with those who rejoice. When you get good news, I remember when we found out that we were, you know, Joe was uh, expecting our first child. Uh, this is the days before uh, cell phones, folks. You know, so you had the old rotary phone, right? <laughs> And, it, and long you had MCI to connect it to long distance because you don't want to pay AT&T exorbitant prices. We called everyone we could think of to tell them this wonderful news. Every family member that we had on our list, no one was home. <laughs> In the middle of the day, no one was home. I remember another time we were in North Dakota and Jill was talking on the phone. The kids were in bed. And I was watching uh, my, my favorite hockey team is the New York Islanders. This is back in 92. They were the severe underdogs to the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins who had already won the two Stanley Cups. They were going to win a third. And they played the Islanders in game seven. And uh, this uh, hockey player for the Islanders named David Volek, who was a household name in his own household, scores the overtime winning goal. And I just remember just leaping for joy. And then Jill would say, shh, up on the phone. I had no one else to share that joy with. <laughs> I couldn't even call my brother, who was a big Islander, said, when you have that kind of rejoicing, that kind of joy that wants to bow, you need someone around you to share it because it's, it just enhances it. Right? It's why guys like to watch sports games in bars. Right? Because you're with your buds and you're just, yeah, you're, you're talking and you're experiencing it. It's like, you know, I don't know what ladies do. <laughs> I won't even go there. At the risk of sounding foolish or offending. Right? But there, there are just those things. You want people to share in your good news. But you also want people who will be there when you're in the midst of sorrow and grief. And that's really when the, the ministry of presence becomes all the more important. We need company to comfort us in our sorrow, but a particular kind of company, a, a company and comfort. And that, I think, is more presence. Because when someone is weeping, when someone is mourning, we are not comfortable with silence. To sit in a, a funeral home with a grieving family, with their loved one in the coffin, and you, you feel compelled. You have to fill that. When I was, my brief stint as a radio disc jockey, the greatest sin you could commit as a disc jockey is to have dead air. You've got to fill every moment with sound. And when you're sitting next to someone who's grieving, you, you want to say, you want to offer them comfort from the scripture. You want to, you want to pray for them. And, and, and it's okay just to be there. You know, when Jesus goes to see Mary and Martha after Lazarus has died, he talks to Martha, right? He tells Martha that your brother will rise again at the resurrection, and he's on the resurrection and the life. 
But it's interesting when he greets Mary, and Mary says, right, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right? Jesus sees Mary weeping. And then what does Jesus do? They're there, Mary. It's, it, it'll be all right. I mean, Lazarus isn't really dead. I'm, I'm about to do a miracle. Don't, don't, don't you fret. No. The, the text literally means Jesus burst into tears. When it says Jesus wept. He, he, he emotes with her. He's not afraid nor ashamed to enter into her grief. He doesn't shame her for her grief either. But he allows her to have that moment and he enters into it with her. I remember reading a story, and I, I certainly experienced this at the, the funerals for my, my mom and my dad. There was a, a fellow whose, whose son had, had died, very, a young boy, and he, he sat in the front row as parents normally do, uh, family members normally do at a, at a funeral home, and, and different ones came up to him and, and said, you know, but you know, it's, it's, he's not in pain anymore. You know, he's, you'll see him again. He's in glory. And the, the fellow said, you know, all of those things were true. But at the time, they weren't helpful. And then there was someone who came up and just sat next to him and said nothing, but he was there. And when, my, when the man sighed, his friend sighed. When the man, when the grieving father put his head in his hands, the man just sat there. And then when he left, the grieving father said, that was more comforting to me than all the words. There is a time for words. Ecclesiastes talks about this, right? But there's also a time for silence. Weeping with those who weep is a time for silence. There are times when words can be necessary, but sometimes you just share your life by just being in the presence of someone who needs you to be there. Because that's, in terms of Galatians 6.2, that's a way of carrying someone else's burden. You're there with them. It's terrible to, to grieve alone. Um, carry one another's burdens, says Paul, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. We, we often think of a burden as, as something that is um, this very heavy thing, some, like almost a physical kind of thing, but it can, be, it can be illness. It can be a sin that someone is struggling with. It can be a form of anxiety. How do you carry that burden? What do you do to lift that away? I, I think part of it is Again, knowing the timing and sensitivity to the Spirit, simply asking in a sincere way, how are you? How are you doing, really? Now, you realize when you ask that question, our culture is programmed to respond, oh, I'm okay. We, it's, it's, like, it's just a pro forma thing, because you, it would be rude not to say that. It's like, hey, how you doing? Oh, good. When in fact... I'm about to lose my job. My wife and I had a horrendous fight, and I'm, I'm, I, we're, we're on the edge. My, my, my kids are really struggling at school, and they're hanging out with the wrong kind of crowd. I've got, I've got so much debt, I don't know how I'm going to dig out from under it. It takes courage. It takes boldness to say that, and it takes humility to say it as well. You think about our culture, we, we live at times, I think, in increasing isolation. I, I think COVID contributed to that, but we were on that road long before COVID. Back in the days when it was still safe to get on public transportation, particularly the subway, or go to any public place, go to a restaurant, go to any place where, where people gather, a shopping mall, whatever. What are they doing? Nine out of ten of them? Oh, they've got earbuds in. So they're with you, but they're not with you. Right? You sit, you, 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 on a plane, unless you're with your, your spouse or your friend, you don't talk to the person who's your seatmate. If they want to talk to you, you're like, I need a book, I need something. I'll put, even if the headphones don't have anything going on, I'm going to put them on. And yet, we thrive best in the company of others. We're not meant to live or be alone. So to ask, how are you, it breaks that cone of silence. It lifts a burden because the question, the question can help point someone to Christ. 
Offering to pray for someone is a way of carrying a burden, and that's good. Offering to pray and carry a burden, cooking a meal, as has we have experienced, people cleaning our house, driving someone to a doctor's appointment, paying someone's bills, setting up doctor's appointments, which again was something that we experienced. The law of Christ that's fulfilled in that is what Jesus says at the end of John 13, 34 and 35. Love one another just as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that you're my disciples. Now I will say it takes humility to give that burden up. There's a reason why I think the scriptures say it's better to give than receive because (laughs) those who receive feel indebted to those who give and we're not careful, those who give will sense that there is a debt that needs to be repaid for that gift. There isn't on either count. So to receive the offer, to carry a burden, Jesus talked about this, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. So when you offer someone to carry their burden, you're offering the very same thing that Jesus offers all of us. And so if I deny you that opportunity, I am prohibiting you from fulfilling the law of Christ. And I myself am not fulfilling the law of Christ because I'm not receiving what Christ has inspired you to do. We are a community that is called to share our lives with one another. That can be a very frightening thing. But when the spirit of Christ and discipleship takes root, it becomes easier with practice. Particularly in light of where our culture is at this moment. Back in the first century, culture was still a pretty dangerous place. The early Christians did not have it easy either. There was a man named Cyprian. And uh, he was writing to his friend. His friend was named Donatus. And they had been friends for a long time. And they had written, they had corresponded through letters and things like that. And in this one letter, Cyprian writes to his friend. He says, Donatus, this seems a cheerful world when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high road, pirates on the seas. In the amphitheaters, men are murdered to please the applauding crowds under all roofs, misery, and selfishness. It is a really bad world. Donatus, it's an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasures of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. We live in a really, really bad world. But in the midst of this really bad world, God has planted not only us, but other communities of men and women who are committed to doing good, who care not about the world's persecutions. A community and communities committed to sharing our lives with one another and serving one another. That's what Cyprian found, and he became a Christian. Let us strive to continue sharing our lives and serving one another. Because there are more Cyprians in the world. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us together to share our lives as you have shared your life with us. May we, Lord God, continue to grow in our grace and in our knowledge of who you are, that we might continue uh, to share our lives to your glory. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.